When I finished my first term as ASNM president, a good friend and colleague sent me an email that said, quote, being a leader is not and never will be an easy job. In fact, it's the hardest job in the world, and many times, a thankless job. You have to be the pillar of strength, even when you feel like you're crumbling to pieces inside, end quote. There is so much truth to that. I'm Rich Vogel, and this is Stimulating Stuff. Welcome back to the Stimulating Stuff podcast. Today's episode is the second in a four-part series in which I'm discussing what's happening in neuromonitoring. In a previous episode called The Elephant in the Room, I talked about many of the challenges that people from the various roles in neuromonitoring face today, including executive leaders and the things that concern them. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about what executive leaders need to know. Before I jump in, I want to say this, my intro for this episode was very much one of support, and some of what I have to say today may sound slightly critical in places, but I don't intend it to be. I'm just trying to share observations, insights, and advice, and I hope you'll take this as support from one leader to another. Now, there's no way that I can possibly address every topic as it relates to leadership in a single episode. I don't know everything, and I don't have all the answers. I've been in this field for a long time though, and I've worked at every level, so I know it well at least. Now that that's out of the way, let's begin today by talking about employee retention. This is a burgeoning concern for leaders in neuromonitoring, and it's a problem that extends to all corners of the American workforce, that is, people leaving their jobs. According to a recent article in the Wall Street Journal, 50 million Americans quit a job in the last year, and another third of the workforce is renegotiating where, when, and how they work. Three quarters of Americans in a recent survey said that they plan to look for new work this year. In a post-pandemic world, the nation's workforce is focused on work-life balance, and the balance of power between work and life, life is playing a greater role. That article in the Wall Street Journal goes on to say, today's workers are focused as much on the quality of their lives as on the quality of their jobs. Gallup found that millennials and members of Gen Z, who now make up half the workforce, place their greatest emphasis on well-being at work. Deloitte heard from the same group that work-life balance was their number one priority. Higher salary and other financial benefits came in well behind with only one in four people even mentioning it. How interesting is that? The take home here is today's workforce doesn't want to live to work. They wanna work to live, and there's really nothing wrong with that. Now, before you start your mental tirade about quiet quitting and how lazy millennials are, let me stop you right there. Blaming the younger generation is, in my mind, a shiftless and uninspired cop-out that goes back literally millennia. There's this great post on the History of Hustle blog called The 2500-Year-Old History of Adults Blaming the Younger Generation. It's an interesting read if you find the time. Anyway, blaming the younger generation? Boring. There is nothing wrong with wanting to have a life outside of work. And today's American workforce, not just millennials, 
wants to devote more quality time to people and activities outside of work. So executives need to adapt to employee needs within reason, but it's about finding balance. This will take a reimagination of how you allocate resources for case coverage, where you focus your business, and how much you charge for the services you provide. More on that later. It's also important to think about burnout. I think a lot of people don't know the difference between stress and burnout, so I thought it might take a minute to tackle that. Burnout may be the result of unrelenting stress, but it isn't the same as too much stress. Stress, by and large, involves too much in general. Too many pressures that demand too much of you physically and mentally. However, stressed people can still imagine that if they can just get everything under control, they'll feel better. Burnout, on the other hand, is about not enough. So stress, too much. Burnout, not enough. Being burned out means feeling empty and mentally exhausted, devoid of motivation and beyond caring. People experiencing burnout often don't see any hope of positive change in their situations. For them, there's no end in sight. The leading cause of burnout isn't overwork. It's actually loneliness and isolation. There was an interesting article in Harvard Business Review by Emma Sapala and Marissa King. They note that the problem of burnout is pervasive at all levels across all professions. The problem became endemic during COVID-19 and it persists today. Taking this a step further, Vivek Murthy, former Surgeon General of the United States, wrote in a separate HBR article, quote, loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than that associated with obesity, end quote. Research by Sarah Pressman of UC Irvine demonstrated that while obesity reduces longevity by 20%, drinking by 30%, and smoking by 50%, loneliness, the same loneliness that contributes to burnout, reduces longevity by a whopping 70%. While feelings of social connection can strengthen our immune system, lengthen our life, and lower rates of anxiety and depression, loneliness and isolation actually have the opposite effect. Now, you may be wondering how this applies to neuromonitoring. What contributes to people feeling lonely and isolated? Well, you probably have some employees that work from home, whether they're back office staff or physicians who always work from home. I've worked from home before, and I can tell you it sucks. Sure, there's benefits, but it's a terribly isolating experience. You sit in a room for eight to 10 hours a day with no genuine human interaction. You lack that social connection that people get in the office environment. It's like solitary confinement. And if you don't find ways to essentially force these folks to actively participate in company social activities and other networking opportunities, these employees will burn out. It's only a matter of time. So what about neuromonitorists? They can't possibly experience this isolation because they work in the OR surrounded by people, right? Wrong. In the environment they work in, if it's unwelcoming or even hostile, if they are not accepted as a member of the team, if they are forced to dress differently than the rest of the staff, 
If they are told to stay in the corner and keep their mouths shut, all of which happens more often than not in our profession, then they will absolutely feel isolated and lonely. This is not an enriching environment. It's not sustainable to continue working in this environment. People get burned out and then they jump ship. So what's the solution? Well, research has shown a very strong link between social support at work, lower rates of burnout, and greater work satisfaction and productivity. After all, the most important factor in work happiness, a UK study showed, is positive social relationships with coworkers. Workplace engagement is associated with positive social relations that involve feeling valued, supported, respected, and secured. As a leader, the most important things that you can do are, first, promote a workplace culture of inclusion and empathy. Second, encourage employees throughout the organization to build developmental networks. Third, celebrate collective successes. Fourth, help people to maintain a healthy work-life balance so they can attend to their personal lives in a healthy and productive way. And finally, defend your employees who are mistreated at your client facilities. Today's employees will no longer accept coming to work and being mistreated, and particularly as it happens in neuromonitoring. I have no idea why any of us accepted this in the past, but times have changed and it's the fastest way to lose your employees. As an employer, maybe you genuinely treat your employees well, but if they spend their days in hospitals where the staff treat them poorly, it's just unacceptable. I still hear reports about rude and dismissive hospital staff, people yelling and cursing at neuromonitorists. They're made to feel unaccepted and marginalized. Can you imagine going to work every day and being treated like that? The hospital is the neuromonitorist's workplace, and your policies on employee conduct and treatment should carry over to that environment. Too often, they do not probably because executive leaders are unaware this is even happening. Now, I know you care about your staff, so you must know it's imperative that you stand up to the hospital staff and let them know these behaviors are unacceptable. Shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, the surgeon's just a jerk, it's just a passive form of acceptance. Maybe you risk losing business and standing up to your clients, but consider this. It doesn't matter if you're active or passive in the mistreatment of your employees you're still ultimately responsible for their well-being. As an executive leader, it's important that you make time to talk to your frontline workers and ask them about their daily challenges. Ask how you can help to improve working conditions. Make your assessments on what you can do, then roll up your sleeves and jump in wherever you can. The days of thinking about your employees in contractual terms are essentially over. It's true. You expect them to work, and they expect you to pay them, but today's workers want more. They want to know you care. So you also need to think about your employees in relational terms. In other words, we care for and about each other. Leaders need to build a culture that protects employees from toxic circumstances, recognizes their work, and includes them in the organization's vision. This is not a progressive idea. It's a pillar of common sense sitting atop a mountain of evidence from decades of research in psychology. I love it when I see companies recognizing their employees routinely on social media, and I'm sure the employees appreciate it too. 
But think of all the companies that post little to no recognition. Appreciate your employees and they will appreciate you back. Remember this, automated periodic bank deposits do not constitute employee appreciation. If people are leaving you, it's probably because they feel like they're in a broken relationship. I think all executive leaders understand that reimbursements have declined in recent years and money is increasingly tight. But do your employees understand this in a way that makes sense to them? Have you included them in the conversation more than just superficially? Try giving your employees more visibility. Maybe you can't offer them a promotion, but you can still develop them and advance their careers. Offer to bring them into the fold and teach them about management, contracting, revenue cycle, finance, etc. A little bit of development goes a long way. Think about this. If you have an employee working as a neuromonitorist for you for 10 years and their knowledge base is limited to neuromonitoring, no one really wins. People who have a better understanding of why things are done feel more like they're part of a team. If you're able to take people under your wing and mentor them, you're making great strides on the relational side. Also, you can't really blame them for not proactively asking for your support in career development. Think about it. You can blame the junior employee for not asking to be included, or you can blame the seasoned leader for not offering to develop and support. Which one makes more sense? The last thing I want to say before I move on to finance is this. You've got to find a way to get your neuromonitorists more training. This is not a job you learn in a few weeks. It is a difficult job that requires extensive training and frequent continuing education. You can't just put people in the OR and hope for the best or assume they don't need the training because they're online with a neurologist. There's been a massive shift away from high quality neuromonitoring in recent years. And I believe one of the primary contributors to this shift is allocation of financial resources away from education. Your company provides a patient care service and patients deserve care from highly trained and highly competent clinicians. There are lots of places you can get lean, but clinical education is not one of them. It's not worth the risk to save a few bucks and there are plenty of cheaper free continuing education programs out there. Meaningful participation in them should be something you require of all clinical employees. Okay, let's move on to finance. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a good chance that you're at least partially to blame for our current financial situation and neuromonitoring. And when I say you, I mean the collective you. Decades of executive leaders in neuromonitoring making the same collective mistakes, and the entire neuromonitoring profession is now the beneficiary of those consequences. From the professional reimbursement side, the biggest reason why insurance companies won't pay for neuromonitoring is lack of high quality evidence to support utilization and reimbursement of neuromonitoring services. They call our work experimental and investigational. Sure, the internet is flooded with interesting research in the form of case examples, but insurance companies don't care about anecdotes. They care about large multi-center studies incorporating thousands of patients evaluating the utility and efficacy of neuromonitoring in systematic ways. 
these studies are nearly impossible to publish because many of the collective you over the decades built databases or participate in the use of databases that have zero utility for research. We need to be logging everything that happens in the course of patient care in a format that is easily queryable. We are not. Even if we could, most of your employees are not getting detailed clinical exams before and after surgery. They are under-documenting case details, and you're signing contracts with facilities that limit access to this critically important information. Every ounce of data that your company collects in a queryable format helps you schedule cases and get reimbursed quickly. And that's the root of the problem. It's short-sighted. There's limited evidence in support of the utility of neural monitoring because we monitor 600,000 cases per year and don't record the information most critical to long-term reimbursement. We've been doing it for decades, and now we're lying in the proverbial beds we made. Research is one of those things that leaders feel is superfluous. People view it as a hobby for nerds or something, and it's the first role to get dropped when the proverbial belt tightens. But it's the most critical piece for securing future revenue on the insurance side. It will take efforts on behalf of the entire neuromonitoring community to develop an evidence base that will support reimbursement in the long term. And that starts with leaders demanding drastic changes in how we collect and store information. The question to ask yourself is this, are you a collaborative leader who is invested in the long-term success of this profession? Someone who will join together with other leaders to drive the necessary change? Or are you here to suck neuromonitoring dry of every penny and dump it, along with your underappreciated contractual employees, when there's nothing left to drain? Okay, let's pause here for a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Zinnia X. Zinnia X is a state-of-the-art electronic health record platform that helps you manage every aspect of your neuromonitoring practice. Their web, mobile, chat, and screen share applications are seamlessly integrated, allowing users to get things done from anywhere and on any device. Zinnia X uses the most cutting-edge technology to provide an efficient user experience and dramatically reduce man-hours spent performing mundane tasks. Schedule your demo by visiting them at zinniax.com. That's Z-I-N-N-I-A-X.com. Let Zinnia X help you put the focus back on patient care and growing your business today. And we're back. Still talking about insurance. So let's move on to the No Surprise Act, the NSA. The NSA has been a thorn in everyone's side. Insurance executives are lying about providers submitting false and unnecessary claims. Arbitration slows down your revenue cycle. I'm sure you know the cost of arbitration has increased 600%, and many executives tell me they have to arbitrate each CPT code separately for the same patient encounter. Rather than bear the cost, they drop most codes because the cost of arbitration exceeds the revenue potential. The whole thing feels like a punishment for being in healthcare. It's a frustrating and disgusting abuse of power on the part of the insurance companies who have significant influence on both state and federal government. As if NSA wasn't enough, insurance companies won't let your neurologists into their networks because their, quote, panels are full. 
then they reject your claims for being out of network. It feels like you just can't win. I think a lot of executive leaders want to blame neuromonitoring societies for not providing support. I really don't think that's fair, and here's why. Each society has different areas of focus. The ASNM, for example, is a 501c3, with a mission focused entirely on providing clinical education. If you want the best available clinical education in neuromonitoring, you go to ASNM or ASSET. But their incorporation status is a not-for-profit. It doesn't allow them to lobby. The ACNS is also a 501c3, but they have a larger scope of function, and they're able to lobby through their delegates to the American Academy of Neurology, the AAN, a 501c6, which, by definition, is created for the improvement of business conditions. So the best place to voice your concern is to the ACNS and or AAN. It's really the AAN who has the resources and power to drive the change you're hoping to see. The same is true for other medical societies like the AANS, which is the American Academy of Neurologic Surgery, or the CNS, the Congress of Neurologic Surgery, or NAS, the North American Spine Society. So, let me give you an idea of how some of this stuff plays out behind the scenes. In 2018, myself and a few others wrote a summary of the literature for Cigna and gave a great argument for why neuromonitoring should be reimbursed. Cigna took the meeting, they read the summary, but balked at the idea of changing their policies for the benefit of so few who cared enough to work on this project. Not long after that, Cigna updated their coverage policy to exclude neuromonitoring in lumbar and cervical spine surgery, the majority of what we monitor. When Cigna implemented this policy a couple of years ago, I brought it to the North American Spine Society where I hold a leadership position as chair of the section on neuromonitoring and a member of the section development committee. Through this connection, NAS was then able to coordinate a strongly worded letter to Cigna from five surgical societies representing 34,000 orthopedic surgeons. The gist of the letter was that surgeons should decide when neuromonitoring is most beneficial to their patients. Of course, there was no response from Cigna, and the policy remained in effect. Earlier this year, the neurosurgical societies, AANS and CNS, wrote their own letter to Cigna and requested a phone call, which was granted. And I was on that phone call just a few weeks ago representing NAS, and also representing all of neuromonitoring, in, in addition to me were Brian Wilent and Adam Doan. On the phone were leaders from other medical societies, AANS, CNS, American Academy of Neurology, and Cigna's medical directors. It was a good call, and I hope it will catalyze some degree of change, but, that's a five years worth of work with one insurance company. Talk about a Sisyphean task. Talk about grinding it out. My point is this. The only groups who have the power and influence to drive change on the insurance side are the major medical societies, not ASNM or ASSET. That's where you go to get great education. I think a lot of leaders sit back and complain that no one is doing anything about these problems. But if you're not communicating with these major medical societies, they may not even be aware there's a problem that needs to be addressed. There's power in numbers, so everyone should be sharing their concerns. 
The best approach is probably to draft a letter and ask your neurologist colleagues to push it up the chain in the medical societies, and surgeons too, by the way. Speaking of which, I believe each state has a dedicated medical association. For example, Texas has the Texas Medical Association. You might consider asking your neurologist colleagues to share your letters with those groups as well. I feel like driving change on the reimbursement side is one of those hot potato items that everyone asks, what are you going to do about it? Well, let me ask the question a different way. What are you going to do about it? This is a place where we really need collaborative efforts on the part of all executive leaders. Okay, enough about insurance. On the facility side, technical fees have declined significantly in recent years. I believe the main reason why facilities are paying less for neuromonitoring is because the market is flooded with undifferentiated competition. What was once an advanced clinical service provided by highly skilled clinicians is now being sold as a fungible commodity. So you're forced to compete on price alone. It may be difficult to hear that your company's service isn't substantially different from any other company's service, but it's mostly true from where I sit. You know, if you sit in on these sales pitch meetings between neuromonitoring companies and facilities, or if you ask supply chain coordinators on the facility side, you'll learn quickly that all these neuromonitoring companies say the exact same thing. They all say, we're HIPAA compliant with highly qualified and certified techs using state-of-the-art equipment. We use real-time professional supervision by neurologists. We have 24-7, 365 coverage with rapid coverage of emergent cases. We have our own education and QA programs. We're joint commission accredited, and we cover all types of cases. When facilities listen to these sales pitches, everyone sounds like the teacher from the Charlie Brown cartoons. The facility makes you compete on price because, as far as they can see at the end of the day, they're getting a tech with a box. They don't know the difference. On top of that, you have these medical device companies offering neuromonitoring for free, which is essentially a box without a tech. Now, I know a lot of people balk at these medical device companies and their sales methods. You might not like it, but they're using effective strategies in an unpredictable and evolving marketplace. In the words of Jamie Foxx, don't hate the player, hate the game. Hospital supply chain coordinators have no clue what neuromonitoring is. It's a line item on a spreadsheet that needs to be acquired at the lowest possible cost. And they're probably incentivized to reduce expenditures. Some facilities outsource to group purchasing organizations or GPOs, which are a thorn in the side of anyone who's ever completed their nonsensical spreadsheets and gone through the stoplight auction. It's never been more clear that facilities care only about getting neuromonitoring at the lowest possible cost. You know, some of these larger facilities have three, five, ten, or more different companies providing neuromonitoring services, all under the same roof. Some of this is related to the fact that surgeons have a financial stake in the particular company, and some of it is related to the fact that individual surgeons have preferences for specific techs. But there's only so much influence surgeons have. Ten years ago, they always got what they wanted, but today, the need to cut costs is outweighing the preferences of individual surgeons. So we're seeing facilities consolidating the number of vendors they contract with. At the end of the day, if surgeons can get a consistent service that isn't terrible, 
they'll go with what the hospital tells them to. And if they really happen to love a particular tech and the company loses the account, they'll just go to the company that wins the contract and encourage them to hire the tech. It will be difficult or impossible for you to enforce a non-compete or non-solicitation clause in the tech's contract. And if you don't have any other business in the region, it may make sense for you to just let them go to a different company rather than terminate the position or move their entire family to a different region. The sad fact is, even if you genuinely provide an exceptional service with expert clinicians, facilities don't see the difference until they get hit with a major lawsuit, which is extraordinarily rare, but that's when they shop around for quality. I think technical reimbursement is a storm that must be weathered, but you can fight it by having a solid understanding of what neuromonitoring is, how it works, what constitutes quality, why that's important, and then educating the right people on the facility side about these things. In my mind, there's nothing more embarrassing and defeating than watching someone who doesn't have a deep understanding of neuromonitoring try to sell it. Speaking of which, there's a good chance that your business development team, if you have one, is bonused on closing accounts, regardless of profitability. They don't care if the margin is flat, if the payer mix sucks, if the surgeons refuse to use neuromonitoring properly, or if the techs have basic accommodations like parking, lockers, badges, unfettered patient access, and appropriate attire to protect them from bloodborne pathogens. They may be closing accounts, but are they closing the right accounts with the right margins and the right accommodations to support your staff? Some business isn't worth having. Remember, volume without revenue is not your friend. That's a quote from my good friend Melissa Hanley. The good news for declining prices on the facility side is I think basic economics will prevail. We'll continue to see integration and consolidation in the marketplace. Fewer companies will have more bargaining power and the market will move toward equilibrium. When it comes to price, I don't know what equilibrium is. If you're like most companies, your average direct cost to staff a case is probably somewhere in the range of $450. And that doesn't include all your indirect costs. It's difficult to fathom a technical fee price floor much below that. As companies begin to cut ties with underperforming facilities, and as facilities continue their movement toward consolidating what they call vendors, and as workers continue their exodus from the market, the decrease in supply will give way to greater demand and likely higher prices, at least in an ideal world. Of course, this is a dramatic oversimplification of the true economics in the neuromonitoring marketplace. Market forces will also influence what you pay employees, how many are available to hire, their level of education, how well you can train them, etc., etc. Again, I think this is a storm that must be weathered. Larger companies benefit from the economy of scale, which puts smaller companies at a significant disadvantage. For that reason, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if most of the smaller neuromonitoring companies are no longer around in five years. It's a bold prediction that will probably anger and frustrate some and may evoke fear and anxiety in others. I really wouldn't worry. I don't think jobs are disappearing. I just see a lot of consolidation coming in the marketplace. 
I mean, just this week, Assure Neuromonitoring acquired Dallas-based Innovation Neuromonitoring, who covered cases in Texas, South Carolina, and Nevada. Also, Houston-based Peak Neuromonitoring Associates, who did business primarily in Kentucky, just closed up shop quite suddenly last week. There have been multiple other closures, acquisitions, and consolidations this year. I believe there are more to come. Okay, that's it for today. Please join me next time when I'll be talking to and about neuromonitorists and their managers working in the neuromonitoring space. In the meantime, please send your questions and comments to stimulatingstuffpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Rich Vogel, and this is Stimulating Stuff. The information and opinions provided in this podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent the opinions of their employers, affiliates, or other third-party individuals or organizations. Sponsorship and other advertising messages do not constitute support of or preference for specific products or services. This podcast is not designed to and does not provide medical advice, diagnosis, opinion, treatment, or services. This podcast is host and all participants, including guests and sponsors, collectively participants, provide general information for entertainment purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is not a substitute for medical or professional opinion, and you should not use the information for that purpose. Participants shall not be held liable or responsible for any advice, course of treatment, diagnosis, or any other information, services, or product you obtain or render. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. Thank you for listening.